Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to follow you home. In Jesus' name, amen. What would it take for you to quit your job and follow someone full-time? I know what you're thinking. You've got bills and a mortgage. You're only X number of years to retirement. Uh, so it's the wrong time to ask that question. Maybe in a few years when you take care of a few things, uh, that might change. Except we all know that, um, well, even though we might take care of the things this, we, we just replace these things that need to be done with new things. So there's never going to be a good time to ask the question. Now, last Sunday, Jesus got baptized. Oh, okay, not, I mean, he actually got baptized 2,000 years ago, but we celebrated it last week. And this year, we're skipping Jesus' wilderness experience, but let me give you a quick summary. Uh, Satan tempted Jesus with everything he could think of, and Jesus said no. We pick up our story with John the baptizer being thrown in jail for refusing to bless Herod's wedding to his half-brother's ex-wife, Herodias. Now, Herodias divorced Herod II. Notice she divorced him, not the other way around, so that she could marry Herod Antipas. That's because Herod II, her ex-husband, was passed over for king, and you guessed it, Herod Antipas, her new husband, was chosen instead. I mean, she was a real climber. And her daughter was a real charmer, and it was her dancing skills that cost John the baptizer his head. I mean, that's quite a family. So instead of coming to John's rescue, because John's now in jail, Jesus heads to Capernaum by the sea, and there he begins to organize his ministry. He then takes up where John the baptizer left off. He proclaims, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And we should note, this is the only time those words were not accompanied by healings, the raising of the dead, and the Pharisees getting really upset. Jesus was out walking along the Sea of Galilee, which is actually below sea level, so it's below Sea of Galilee. And he spots two brothers who are fishermen, and he says, follow me, and they do. Matthew steals St. Mark's favorite word immediately, so it obviously happens pretty quick. Matthew then notes Jesus grabs two more brothers and went all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Over the next few chapters, we're going to pick up eight more disciples. Two also, by the way, at least were Jesus' brothers, which means Jesus had a thing for brothers. And uh, then there were some others, and we begin to see the whole team coming together. Again, what would it take for you to cast your nets aside, leave your boat, and follow someone full-time, especially if you're not a brother? Because if you're a brother, then evidently you've got to do what the other brother says. So it, it's, yeah. For me, by the way, for me to drop everything and follow someone, it would have to be a vocation and not a job. Now, the difference between a job and a vocation is simple. When it comes to a job, you get hired, you spend a bunch of hours at work, and uh, then you keep working until you quit, get fired, or retire. With a vocation, you are called, and the calling assumes a caller, which in our case is God. And your calling is more than a job because it's who you are even when you aren't at work, and it doesn't just last until you quit or get fired or retire. It lasts not just even this whole life. It lasts forever and ever. And whereas a job requires certain skills and abilities before someone's willing to hire you, even if your only skill and ability is you're willing to work cheap, a calling is very different. God works with who he's chosen, developing the person into who they need to be because the only thing that God was really interested in was their heart and soul. A calling also assumes a call, which as much as we would love, a phone call, a text, an email, or, or, or someone in the next room yelling at us, something that was tangible that we could both hear with our ears and respond to, um, because that's what Peter, Andrew, James, and John had when Jesus walked up and said, follow me. We're not likely to experience that. And whereas a lot of people assume it was a no-brainer when Jesus said, follow me, because who wouldn't want to follow the Son of God? 
nobody at that time actually knew he was the Son of God, which is why it's a little puzzling as to why they dropped everything and followed him anyway. So how many voices do you hear in your head? Your mom and dad, your grandparents, third grade teacher, spouse, children, neighbor, Max Headroom, uh, your favorite band. All those voices calling you. And the key is knowing when to pay attention and when to ignore them. See, when it comes to your calling, it's very important that you're able to discern, first of all, that it's God's voice. And secondly, that you listen to his voice so that you can mute all the other voices. In John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And this is, this is a bold statement because Jesus makes it clear that we can actually hear God's voice and respond. And it needs to be said, Satan is also calling you along with like a million monkeys and their only purpose is to distract you so that you cannot hear God's voice or respond. Now, if you study the calling of the prophets, apostles, and evangelists, you discover that rarely did God uh, call them to do what they wanted to do. Instead, he called them to do what they needed to do. And it might be subtle, but it's a very important difference. There have been a few times in my life where something happened to me or through me that was very painful, very awkward. Um, it, it, it was uncomfortable. And it was not at all, by the way, what I asked for or prayed for. And yet in the end, when it was all said and done, it was both what I needed and what someone else needed, except that neither of us knew what we needed until we had gone through it. Pastor Frederick Beekner said, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, which is just saying a calling involves both looking in and out, because it's not just about us. It's about us. It's about our relationship with God, and it's about us in our relationship with the world. Do you know what your hidden hunger is? Probably not, because then it wouldn't be hidden. Um, I've eaten all sorts of kinds of foods, rattlesnake, jellyfish, sarks fin before it was endangered, seaweed, whale steak, whale blubber, reindeer, elk, a whole bunch of other things. And it was always an adventure, but, but it was never something that I hungered for. In other words, I, I've never woke up and said, man, I got to go find me some, some rattlesnake or some reindeer for breakfast. In and out Burger, on the other hand, first time I had a double-double animal protein style, I was hooked. In fact, by the way, every time I am anywhere near an In-N-Out burger, you know where you're going to find me at lunch and dinner. And if I happen to be visiting you and there's an In-N-Out burger, I will be happy to pay for your gas and pay for your lunch or dinner if you'll take me there. I've even been known to tell people, could, could you um, take your wrapper and put it in a Ziploc bag and bring it back just so I can breathe it? Yeah, I know it's a little strange. To discover your hidden hunger, your deep gladness, it requires you to know who you really are. Not just in your eyes, and certainly not just in the eyes of social media or your friends or your family or society or, or any of the other million voices that are out there, but to know who you are in the eyes of God because you are his unique and unreproducible miracle. There is so much about Christianity that is generic. I mean, we were all created in the image of God. We're all sinners. We're all saved by grace through faith. And this is not our work. It's the gift of God. And Paul goes on to say this, the Lord will rescue us from every evil work and bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. I mean, all of those things, okay, those apply to everyone who's a believer. And yet the gospel is also very, very personal because our response to God and his grace is personal. When it comes to responding, you can't just copy and paste. Have you ever read the book of James? By the way, it doesn't take long. It's only five chapters, 1,742 words in the NIV version. Uh, the average person reads 150 to 200 words a minute, so you can read it in less than 10 minutes. 
While us pastors tend to keep it generic, Ephesians 2, Romans 8, Colossians 3, John 3, 16, um, James the saint had no such limits. James doesn't apologize, and he says that a Christian vocation, and he makes sure that we understand that everyone who says they are a Christian are called by God, and therefore their Christian faith is their vocation. And then he goes on to say, by the way, you don't get to decide what that means. Only God does. Um, but now that we understand that it's our vocation and that it's how we live, it, it, it causes us to begin to ask a bunch of questions. And by the way, before you think that you're going to have to quit your job and go to seminary and become a pastor, just hold off for a second. 500 years ago, you were either a priest or you weren't. And by the way, if you were a priest, then even the kings and the queens and the emperors had to listen to you because you had God on speed dial, and he used to come down and whisper in your ear and tell people who weren't priests how they had to live and work and breathe. Except, to quote the Wizard of Oz, in order to actually believe that, you had to pay no attention to the man behind the curtain um, because the man behind the curtain wasn't God. When Luther discovered his fear of lightning and he left law school and became a priest, he did so in order to bring peace to his soul because he assumed that priests knew everything. Except when he became a priest, he was even more confused and lost than when he wasn't a priest because he would pick up the red phone and nobody was there. He never got a text or an email from God saying, this is what you're supposed to tell that person. In fact, no matter where he went, he... he, he he couldn't hear the voice of God until, and this is very, very important, not just for Luther, but also for us, until he read the Word of God. And I don't mean just read it as a history book or a theology book, but he read it as a love letter from God to his people. One day he was reading First uh, Peter, and it was like lightning struck, and considering his fear of lightning, that this is very important, but this is what Peter said. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And no matter how hard Luther tried, using all the exegetic, systematics, uh, linguistics, and other theological tours, tools, he could not limit that royal priesthood to just the priests and the pastors. And instead of sitting around a church all day, um, talking about God like all the professional priests did, well, it turns out that these priests were custodians, students, accountants, politicians, homemakers, nurses, cashiers, soldiers, and, and even the person at the end in Alberger who makes the double-double animal protein style as well as those amazing hand-cut fries. In fact, it, it turns out being a wife, husband, grandparent, child, and friend are also vocations, which means that you are called as a priest. In other words, everyone who is a believer is also a priest of God. When Luther put Peter's definition of a Christian's calling and them being priests alongside the book of James and James's whole don't just tell people what you believe but actually live it out, he came up with a beautiful saying. He says, you know, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. So everything we do, and we're doing it for God, we do it for our neighbor. And everything they do for God, they, they do it for us. And together as the community of faith, whatever we do... We do it even for those who don't believe. And it's not so much for them so that they would believe, although that would be great. We just do it because it's the right thing to do. And all of it is done to God's glory. Now, if we take the Great Commission seriously, and Jesus says we should, then pastors, DCEs, and Lutheran teachers, for the most part, should be pitied and not revered. Pastors, DCEs, and Lutheran teachers don't often go and make disciples. 
they often sit or stand in one place like a pulpit and make disciples. And somebody has to do that. They have to take all the people that the missionaries and the priests who went out and found these people and then brought them to the church so that the second part of the Great Commission, which is teaching them everything I have commanded you, can take place. But Jesus did say go, and pastors, DCs, and Lutheran teachers tend to leave that to the missionaries and people like you who spend your time outside the stained glass windows every day. And when you bring them here, that there's somebody here who can then do the second part, which is teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Each time I hear a pastor say that his work is in his church and among God's chosen, I know why they think that and where it came from, and I know that there's some truth to it. But you know, even Martin Luther noted Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies, and at the end of all, his disciples deserted him. And on the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. You know, when Jesus sent the twelve into the world, his instructions were simple. Um, Preach the kingdom of God is near and heal the sick. And while that sounds like two things, it's really just one. And while at first the disciples went places they were comfortable with and worked among people they knew, As their calling became more real and the urgency of the kingdom became more pressing, they began to venture further and further into the midst of their enemies with the holy expectation that by God's grace and mercy, all things really were possible. Once we Christians realize the ability for us to do and be what God has called us to be and do is not dependent upon our grades, our church membership, our parents' lineage, our strength, our talent, our IQ, or even our religiosity, that's when we come to see what it really means to be a priest. And maybe I should have told you this sooner, but but actually maybe not. You see, the definition of a priest is simply a person who stands between God and someone who needs God and holds on to both of them until the person who needs God can hold on to God for themselves. A priest is just a placeholder. And priests never need to worry about job security because there's more than enough people in the world who need God so that and no matter how many people they help, there's always going to be more. And by the way, sometimes they are the person who needs God. And they themselves need a priest to hold on to them and hold on to God. Madeline Lengel uh, was being interviewed in Denver a number of years ago. And she was asked what it was like being a Christian writer. And, and I love her response. She said, I've been brought up to believe that the gospel is to be spread. It is to be shared, not kept for those who already have it. Well, Christian novels reach Christians. They don't reach out. Therefore, I am not a Christian writer. I am a writer who is a Christian. Now, if I am truly a Christian, then that will show in my work. And if I am not truly a Christian, then that too is going to show in my work, whether I want it to or not. Think how this applies to you and me. And no matter what we are, whether we are the butcher, the baker, or the candlestick maker, if we are Christians our faith is going to show in whatever we do. I know we like to talk about the 12 disciples who became the 12 apostles, but the truth is there were never just 12. See, even before the 12, there was Jesus' mom and his brothers. And don't forget the women in Luke 8 who support Jesus financially. And then don't forget all the people Jesus healed and loved and forgave and who then started to heal and love and forgive others just like the one-tenth leper, the man called Legion who had mental health issues, Mary Magdalene whose side hustle really was hustling, Zacchaeus the cheater, Nicodemus the Pharisee. 
See, there's no evidence Jesus chose them because they were brighter, nicer, wealthier than anybody else. In fact, the New Testament record suggests that they were continually missing the point, tooting their own horn, fighting for the pole position, and when push came to shove, they were more interested in saving their own skins than keeping their promises to Jesus. Their sole qualification was their willingness to let their feet and hands and the rest of them move forward, one very tiny step at a time when Jesus said, follow me. And somewhere in the journey, their footsteps were no longer as hesitant, their hearts and minds no longer as fearful. C.S. Lewis wrote, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And you see, it's that moment. That moment as we take those steps, that moment in our journey, the one where we see heaven as clearly as we see the world that we're living in, that Jesus knows that we will never look back. In fact, we will never look back, but we will gather those around us, whoever they are, because we want them to see heaven as clearly as we do, because that's what our calling is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.